And our featured artist is Lance Conrad. Good to see you again, Stephen. Matthew. What form will it take? When will it come? Jesus said all we had to do is ask. I have been asking. Every day. The Holy Spirit will come when the time is right. Hey everyone, how you doing out there? I am your host, Sam. And we are actually going to start a series here on Sheep Among Wolves. Believe it or not, when you look at the Google Analytics, over the last five to 10 years, one of the top Google searches is what is the Bible? And I find that surprising because you would think that is kind of a known fact. However, when you kind of dig down deep into those analytics, what people are really trying to understand is what is the origin of the Bible? How did we get the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? Who decided on these books that are in the Bible that we call scripture or canon? And those are some really poignant questions that are often overlooked, especially in the church, but also in the culture at large. So what I want to do is tackle that question, not only from a historical standpoint, but also look at the different cultural aspects that are happening around certain time periods within this early Christian church. Believe it or not, what we call canon today really wasn't formalized until around the 400s, maybe even the 500s, and wasn't completely agreed upon until the 1500s. Now that's a shocker. Because if you would probably do a poll among especially Christians today and ask them, when was the Bible formed? They would probably tell you, oh, sometime in the first century. And to some extent, that might be correct. However, the whole process itself had to play out over time and didn't become a part of what we know today as scripture or canon until centuries after Jesus of Nazareth walked on this earth. What I want to do on this series, Origin of the New Testament, is walk us through period by period and expand it out a little bit and look at what is happening during this time frame and how that pushes us forward to what happens later on, which is this canonization of the scripture. So we will look at arguments and angles and look at what was going on at the surface, at the level of the event itself during these time periods. Any major movement, you will have a start of a movement and then have leaders that are arising out of these movements and moving in this direction or that direction. I mean, all we have to do is look at the modern church today with all the different denominations and groups and how that has spawned into different theological understandings. And the early church was no different. So our discussions will go to the very beginning with Jesus of Nazareth 
and the apostles, in the forming of the books, through the centuries of the church, and which book would be held in highest regard, and then to the councils where they actually formalized all of this to even modern day, where now we have discoveries that have been dormant for thousands of years. And how are we supposed to understand the Nag Hammadi discovered in the 1940s or the Dead Sea Scrolls? And so what do we do with these other writings that were discovered? Do we just dismiss them or do we start to begin a new discussion? Not to say that we create a Bible number two and canonize more scripture, but what I am saying is, Maybe we can look through this text and have a better understanding of what is going on during these early years of the Christian church. So I see our series on the origin of the New Testament as a journey, and each episode will move us farther along in our time period. So in part one of our series, We are going to look at the first 20 years after the life of Jesus of Nazareth and what is going on in those years to this group of followers. And this will lay the foundation for what we will begin to explore in part two of our series, which is the actual writings themselves. So let's begin to explore the first 20 years of the origins of the New Testament. To start our discussion on the origin of the New Testament, we need to focus on the dates. And before I get into the dating of the New Testament, I want to focus on our dating system. Obviously, as we are doing our dating, this is 2020. And believe it or not, there are different ways of coming up with what is the year. I know that may seem odd, but there are different calendar systems. One famous one, obviously, is the Mayan calendar system, which is different than what we have today, which is the Gregorian uh, calendar system. Year number one as Anno Domini, which means before Christ or the year of Christ. And in this particular calendar system, there is no zero. It's one AD and then one BC. And that system really wasn't even created until 525 by Dionysius Exegus and didn't become a calendar system used widely until around 800. So really, when we go back and talk about in year 33 or in year 68 and so forth and so on, so this is us going back and saying, hey, in this year, but it gives us a point of reference. And as a side note, in the 21st century, those that are reading history will notice that there's a new system in place where they say BCE and CE. And so if you're reading anything and it says 525 CE, what that means is it's common era. Really, all they've done is they've changed the word Anno Domini, which is A.D., 
and changed it into Common Era. And instead of saying before Christ, BC, they say BCE, which is before Common Era. They haven't really changed the uh, system of the Gregorian calendar as far as the dating. They've just changed the words and the terminology. So with that in mind, let's look at the dating of Jesus to give us this starting point of the origin of the New Testament. There is some debate on when Jesus was actually born in scholarship. Even though the church, through their system, designated Anno Domini as the designated birth year, so one, in reality, if we actually go back and look at the dating of that, some scholars have argued based on historical records and based on looking back at the time frame and who was in power and what events were happening, some scholars will debate that Christ actually was born three or four years and as much as six years prior to this dating of one. So that would put it possibly back into 4 to 6 BC or BCE. That's important to note because as we move forward in this origin of the New Testament, dates will become very important, especially in this first century. As we move forward, the consensus in the academic world is that Jesus started his ministry around the age of 30. So in our dating of the calendar system, in the Gregorian calendar, they usually put the date around 30. Now, obviously, some scholarship, if we put the date of Jesus's birth, you know, farther into BC or BCE, then it could be as early as 25. And then when we look at Jesus's ministry, it lasted about three years. Now, there is some argument within the academic world that Jesus only had a ministry for about a year. But for the sake of an argument, we will say that Jesus's ministry was three years. So that puts us around 33 in the Gregorian calendar, and it could be as early as 28. So that gives us a starting point in our story. So the question we have now is what is happening at this time in history? So after the ascension of Jesus of Nazareth, the followers of Christ are in turmoil, not knowing what to do now that their leader is gone. And so that's where we pick up the story here in Pentecost, which happens, let's say, around 33, just for uh, discussion purposes here, where you have this start of the movement that happens. They all gather together in a room, and as Acts tells us, the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they begin to start evangelizing. And this is where we start getting the rapid growth of the church. And so what we have then going forward is the rapid growth and Acts in the early chapters talks about a growth of literally thousands of people at a time. And obviously the Jewish church leaders at the time 
did not like this at all. They thought they got rid of the problem by getting rid of Jesus of Nazareth by using the Romans to crucify him. And so they figured their problem was gone. Well, now what we see is the followers of Jesus of Nazareth are going to the synagogues and standing outside of the synagogue and teaching and preaching and evangelizing about Jesus. This does not bode well for the young movement. For obviously now we have the spotlight on them with these Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, now going to Herod Agrippa, which is the de facto king of the Judea area put in place by the Roman Empire and saying they need his help in squashing this new movement. Like any good leader, will do what they call a one-off. They don't want to directly interfere into this conflict. And so they deflect it off and give the authority to these Jewish religious leaders to handle the problem. And the Roman Empire will just kind of turn a blind eye and allow them to go and get rid of this problem. So now with this authority given to them by the Roman government, set up bands of mercenaries to go out and persecute this young movement. So now what we have in the first two to three years after Pentecost is the rapid growth of the church in this Jerusalem area, but then also having the Jewish religious leaders sending out these groups to persecute the church, and in some cases imprison those followers. And then what we have is a culmination of this persecution. And that happens roughly two years after Pentecost. And what we have is the first stoning of a leader of the church, and that was Stephen. Now to back it up a little bit, Stephen was one of the first seven deacons that was appointed after Pentecost. And deacons were in charge of groups of people. Now, it is rumored at the time that a young man named Saul was at this event, this stoning event, and might have even participated in the stoning of Stephen. So we now have the first martyr in the movement. And this creates major chaos within the organizational structure and within the church itself. We have now gone from persecution to imprisonment to now death. Needless to say, this creates a lot of chaos in the church two or three years after Pentecost. And some of the leaders at the time were Philip Peter, John, and then James, not James, the brother of John, which was James of Zebedee or John of Zebedee, but James, which was possibly the brother of Jesus. And so what we have now is we have the start of the scattering of this new movement. And so we see Philip, Peter, and John now pick up their tent and move it to 
Samaria. Now, Samaria is north of Jerusalem. To recap this, we have, through the persecution of the young movement, we now begin to have a split as far as location in the church. We have now a group of followers in Jerusalem that stay in Jerusalem. And now we begin to start going out into the regions of Judea, into Samaria with this other group of leaders, Philip, Peter, and John. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jeremiah 1.5 There is a part of us that is eternal, God-given. Doctors can't explain it, but when we die, every one of us loses 21 grams. It could be our breath, but I believe it is the life that God has given us, our spirit. God says, even before he formed us in the womb, he knew us. He gives us this breath, this spirit. All of our accomplishments, our failures, our shape of our body, it all comes down to this 21 grams in the end. We are beings with a limit. God breathes these 21 grams of life into us at our beginning, and then 21 grams goes back to God in the end. Now, what we do in between is up to us. So are you living the life God envisioned when he blew that 21 grams into your life? Jeremiah says that he knew us in the beginning when he was forming us, which means God took time to shape and mold us. And then he gave us this life, this spirit to be any person we want to be. Are you in the original shape that God gave you or are you deformed? broken, needing God to reshape us back into this original form, the form he envisioned when he gave you that 21 grams of life. So the time is now to reshape this 21 grams before you go back to your creator. So in your prayer today, say, Lord, help me discover the real me, the me you envisioned when you created me in this womb so that I can be what you envisioned for me during this time in between the 21 grams. Our featured artist today is Lance Conrad. He is an accomplished musician, composer, and producer. He is the founder of Human Winds Record Label out of Minneapolis and has over 200 artists under that label. You can find his work all over movies and TV shows, as well as in commercials, for he's done work for Paramount Studios, Netflix, Nickelodeon, ABC, NBC, HBO, and many more. He was also one of Prince's house engineers prior to his passing. He has been nominated twice for the Mark Award as a composer and as a musician. Currently, he is with Black Label Music, So if you want to find out more about Lance Conrad, you can find him on the internet at LanceConrad.com. So here is Lance Conrad with Alive. 
little box we're residing in Hinders the creativity from all the world we're living in Time to break every chain We are forgiven Now we pick up the story in around 37. So this is give or take four to five years after the Ascension and then Pentecost. And at this time, we have the first major conversion, and that is of Saul and later Paul. So needless to say, the group of followers in Jerusalem were very skeptical For this was the same man who had just a few years earlier was part of this group that would go around and persecute Christians. And so during this few years after Paul's conversion, 
he kind of laid low. But ultimately, he had this urging within him to begin to preach and knowing that he could not do it in the Jerusalem area. He then traveled up north to Damascus and then ultimately ended up in Tarsus, which is part of this Arabia area. And this happened around 40. So give or take seven years from Pentecost. Now you have three major areas of influence that is beginning to take shape with this young movement. You have the core group in Jerusalem. You have another core group in the Antioch or Samaria area. And now you have Paul who is in Tarsus or the Syria area. We now have three major regions of this new movement within the first seven years. So a major event happens around 44, and that is the death of James, the brother of John, not James, the brother of Jesus, was preaching in Jerusalem, and Herod Agrippa actually ordered the execution of James not through the Jewish leaders, but directly. So now what we have in around 44, so 10 to 11 years after the start of this movement, you now have the Roman Empire feeling the threat of this new movement. And in order to appease the Jewish leaders, you have Herod Agrippa ordering the execution of James who happens to be one of the disciples of Jesus. So now we have a direct link into Jesus and one of his disciples. So needless to say, this really puts a monkey wrench into this new movement. So let's talk about Paul, who converted to this new movement around 37 and went through a period where the church in Jerusalem really had doubts about whether or not he was truly a convert or he was just infiltrating the church to persecute it or to destroy it from within. And so this went on for about two or three years. And finally, Paul decided to head north up into the Syria region and ultimately settled in Tarsus. Hence, we get the Saul of Tarsus or Paul of Tarsus. And this happened around 40. So Paul's ministry in Syria was primarily to non-Jewish or pagan people. Now, this happens for about three or four years. And then Peter, who is over in Antioch, calls for Paul to come to Antioch. And so he does. And this happens around 44, which is when all of this heavy persecution is happening in Jerusalem. And this is the time where James ultimately 
loses his life after Herod orders his execution. So now you have Paul joining with Peter and Barnabas and John Mark over in Antioch. And he stays there until Peter heads to Jerusalem around 45. Paul is actually with Peter and Barnabas when they go to this meeting in Jerusalem with James. It is really not known whether or not Paul influenced the meeting at all or was just there as an observer. Since at this time, Paul was really a young missionary and was still trying to gain favor in the movement that still had doubts about whether or not Paul was truly a believer or whether he was just infiltrating the church to destroy it. Well, after this meeting in Jerusalem, Paul then goes back to Antioch with Peter and Barnabas and stays in Antioch until his call to his first mission trip. So that brings us to this first opportunity for the movement to go global. And what I mean by that is Paul is the first of the major missionaries. So Peter is the bishop in Antioch. So Peter commissions Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel global. And they first head out to an island called Cyprus, which is out in the Mediterranean Sea. And then from there, they go to Pamphylia, which is in the Asian Minor or modern day Turkey, which is on the southern tip, and then ultimately go as far north as Galatia. Until roughly two years later, they get called back by Peter to go to this council that has been called in Jerusalem. So this council that has been called in Jerusalem is really a part two of the discussions that happened in 45. So this council is called by the church in Jerusalem under James. Because now this issue of do we adhere to Jewish laws or not has culminated into a major, major faction. Because now we have Paul and Barnabas going global into Asia Minor, or what we call modern-day Turkey. And their converts are completely from the pagan world. And Paul and Barnabas are not adhering to the strict Jewish guidelines with these new converts. And obviously, word has gotten back to the Jerusalem church, and the leaders of the Jerusalem church are not happy with what is going on with Paul and Barnabas. And so they reach out to Peter and tell him to bring Paul and Barnabas and then come to Jerusalem so that they can have a council or conference to make sure that these new missionaries that are going out are adhering to the correct laws and theological positions. So now Paul, Barnabas, John, Mark, and Peter all head to Jerusalem. And so now we have an introduction of a third argument into this equation. You have James 
arguing from the Jewish or the ultra-conservative. Yes, we will loosen up the laws on circumcision, but we will not loosen any laws about kosher or non-kosher foods and some of these other mosaic laws. You have Peter in the middle who is arguing that the church should not adhere to circumcision or kosher laws, but he is okay with some of these other mosaic and Jewish laws. And now you have the introduction of Paul into the equation who argues that there shouldn't be any adherence to Jewish law at all. And Paul relies on his credentials as a Jewish legal scholar in his previous life prior to converting to this movement to argue that this is a completely new religion and should be treated as such and should not adhere to the Jewish laws. The conclusion is pretty much the same conclusion that happened five years earlier, but now they are codifying it into a theological base. Really what's happening is we are now beginning to see the first split in the church. You have the church in Jerusalem under James that is still adhering to major Jewish law, and you have Peter that is now the bishop of Antioch, loosening those laws and allowing Gentiles to come into the flock without having to adhere to these Jewish laws. And now you have Paul, who is ministering to the pagan world that is saying, you don't even have to adhere to Jewish law. So the split is beginning to happen within this young movement roughly 17 to 20 years after the start of the movement, because you have three strong leaders that have now emerged in the church. You have James, you have Peter, and now you have Paul. And now you see the split within the missionary group of Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. This missionary group is wanting to start a second mission after they've been called back from their first mission and go farther into the Asia Minor and even into the Greek cities. But Paul does not want John Mark to come with him and Barnabas. Now, this really upsets Barnabas because tradition has it that Barnabas was probably cousins with John Mark. and. As you know, blood is thicker than water. And so Barnabas and Paul get into a rift here and they split ways. So now Paul takes a new person that is introduced into the story by the name of Silas. So then Paul and Silas venture out into Asia Minor and ultimately into Greece. And Barnabas with John Mark now go to Cyprus. So here around 50 to 52, two major missionary groups that are going out into the global regions beyond Judea. (laughs) 
So I have mainly focused on these major leaders that arose out of the early movement and that is talked about a lot in Acts. But what I want to do now is circle back around to these other persons that had influence in the church and helped spread the church on a global basis. And so the first one I want to focus on here is James, the brother of John, and who also became the first disciple martyred in around 44. Now, prior to him being in Jerusalem, historians believe that James had a ministry as far west as Spain. We see James between roughly 33 and 44 going back and forth to Spain. And then ultimately, he was executed by Herod Agrippa. And that may be the reason why Herod chose James to execute, because if he was heading as far west as Spain, he was going through the Roman Empire. And so James was becoming a thorn in the Roman Empire. Another disciple was Philip. We see Philip ministering in Asia Minor, Caesarea, and we also see Philip going as far south as Ethiopia, even within the time period of the 30s. And Philip ultimately met his death in Ethiopia. Another disciple, Bartholomew, ventured east. It is thought that Bartholomew went as far east as Armenia and then ultimately into India, where then he met his death by the hands of Hindu priest. Thomas, who, as we know from the Bible, was the doubter, ventured into Armenia and then into India in the Punjab province and then went as south as Madras. Now, Matthew, who the Gospel of Matthew is named after, stayed in the Jerusalem and Palestinian area most of the time. But toward the end of his life, did venture down into Ethiopia and ultimately died in Ethiopia. Now, Simon and Jude, they ventured over into Tesaphon, which is in the Parthian Empire, which is modern-day Iraq. And they spent a lot of time in this area until ultimately they were called back first to Beirut and then ultimately down into Jerusalem. Now, Andrew, who was the brother of Simon Peter, traveled the farthest north of all the beginning disciples and missionaries. Andrew ultimately ended up in Crimea, which is modern-day Ukraine, but then also spent time in the city of Byzantium, which is modern-day Constantinople, and also was in Petrus. Now, we did talk about John Mark previously. I do also want to stress that John Mark was ultimately called to Alexandria by Peter and became the Bishop of Alexandria. Now, the last disciple I want to highlight here was Matthias, who was called to replace 
the one we don't talk about, Judas Iscariot. And Matthias did most of his missionary work in Armenia, but did also end up on the north shore of the Black Sea. So in this beginning group of disciples, you see over time that they start to globalize this movement. We have James, the son of Zebedee, going as far as Spain. And then we have Andrew going as far north as modern-day Ukraine. And we have this group with Philip and Matthew going as far south as Ethiopia. And we have Thomas and Bartholomew going as far east as India. So during this first 20 to 40 years of the church, that is the scope of the church. It has gone from a small group of around 500 people in the core of Jerusalem to now tens of thousands that are spread out in a vast region. So that is huge, major growth within the first few decades of this movement. So as we come to the close of this part one, we now have the scene set for what will happen in part two as now writings begin to take form and begin to circulate. Because how do you get this movement to stay focused and coherent when you are now going across thousands of miles. And so in order to do that, there has to be writings that are formalized and then sent throughout the regions. And that is what we will look at in part two of our series, which is the formalization of the writings and then ultimately the deaths of the first disciples and apostles, and leaders. And so then we will be getting into the transition of a church that will no longer have its original leaders. I hope you have enjoyed this journey through the first 20 years and will be with me in part two of the series as we take a look at the next few decades. Among wolves.